Hi, welcome back to another episode of The High Note. I am your host, Brandon. I am joined once again by my two best friends in the world, Shub and Harold. How are you guys guys? doing? So today is a very special day, guys. We're going to start what The High Note is actually going to be. We want to do deep dives into some of our favorite franchises. And today we start by going back to the beginning of a galaxy far, far away. That's right, Tube. We are starting with Star Wars episodes 1, 2, and 3. Now, I don't know if I can speak for everybody, but I think everybody here went to all three theatrical releases, correct? That is correct. I didn't I only saw number 3 in theaters with my friend, and when we get to that, that's like going to be a really special moment for me. I want to share that. Gotcha. But, uh, I don't think I saw one in two in theaters. At least if I did, I can't remember. But to be clear, you did see them in order, correct? Yeah. Like, I mean, you didn't yeah. miss out on one. You you watched them shortly. It's part of my generation. I grew up with Star Wars, you know, and even if I'm not a big fan of it, it's something that still is really special and I like a lot. Absolutely. And I think the reason it's so special and it's kind of owing to the fact that before we can even talk about the prequels, we have to talk about 1977 with the release of George Lucas's masterpiece, although it really wasn't viewed that at the time until it was released, and then everybody grabbed on. But Star Wars, the original release, it set up everything that this that this this world was going to be. He revolutionized Hollywood for the next you know, good couple of years. And everybody was a good couple of years. I think Star Wars still commands Hollywood to a degree. It was just so unique for that time period. You know, it's like nobody had like a a saga in space, you know what I mean? And and had character development the way it was portrayed on screen. It was unique. The faceless hero. Therefore unpopular in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And unlike most things tending to unfortunately come out at what is perceived at the wrong time and not as enjoyed as much as it could be, Star Wars hit at the perfect time. It was a good time for it to hit, yeah. Because I think Star Trek was already pretty well established. And with Star Trek, it was very secular. It was stuff that you could kind of a little bit more relate to, where this has more of like a fantasy sweep to it. Now, I'm, 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 I might be misremembering, but were there Star Trek movies at the time of Star Wars being released, or was it solely television? It was solely television. It was solely a show at that point, because I think the first Star Wars was... Ni- ooh, ni- I didn't say 79. Is no, it, it was 77. So it was before A New Hope. Well, A New Hope is is Star Wars, the first movie, but I'm going to get into that. Yes, you, you're actually talking about the original original that was released yes okay so um going back now it's hard to think that when star wars was released in 1977 it was just called star wars it wasn't until 1980 when we got empire strikes back that the numeral five Mm -hmm. was added to the title and made everybody kind of wonder for a minute and then they released um the star wars with the four which was A New Hope, the original Star Wars. And right then and there, with the release of Episode Five in 1980, it marked the promise that we were going to get one, two, and three at some point. At some point, George Lucas was going to go prior to the events of A New Hope and show us how Anakin became Darth Vader, how the Empire became the Empire, where this... Dark Lord of the Sith. I don't 
Uh, no, I'm correct. Sith was never even in the original trilogy, correct? No, no, there was never a mention of it. So we, I think when we get into these discussions about this, these three movies today, we're going to have to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything that's kind of been built from what the prequels gave us. And it's really interesting that he started with what is now known as 4, 5, and 6, because when I was growing up and just on the cuff of when Phantom Menace was kind of come out, I was slipping over to a friend's house and we watched the originals 4, 5, and 6 as it was known. And I was confused because I was like, how is there six movies if I haven't seen 1, 2, and 3? But I didn't understand that they were going to come still. Yeah, story. And that's what I would grow up with. It's the, it's the pre-story. Because um, Darth Vader is like, he was that kind of villain that left you wanting to know more about him. Especially when he died uh, as, as Luke's father at the end of um, episode six. And redeemed. Yeah, and uh, it redeemed. Yeah, that whole theme is in that movie. Um, but there was so much more that fans wanted. And I think that was really like a driver for um, Lucas to go back and actually do these prequels. And then you brought up a good point, Harold, about being confused, as a lot of people at the time were when they started noticing the four, five, and six numerals being added on. And it wasn't until 1999, I believe Return of the Jedi came out in 87 or 85. I believe it was 85. Um, or 83. It's one of the odd numbers. But there was a long span of time where the only extra content that Star Wars fans got was books and extended lore. We wouldn't get another numeral addition to the saga until 1999 with the release of The Phantom Menace. Now, we all did some research coming into this episode because we want to be at the top of our game. So let's start breaking it down. Star Wars, Episode One: The Phantom Menace, chronologically the start of George Lucas's Star Wars adventure. I think one of the first uh, really good things to point out is that no matter, even the last ones in the trilogy, no matter which Star Wars movie it is, the opening title scroll and all that is just, it's iconic. It sounds great, you know, no matter what it says, you like seeing it go across the screen as it fades off into the background before it all begins, and it's just the score and all. Honestly, as a child, I never understood what I was reading in those opening crawls. It didn't matter what the visual storytelling that took place in, even in 1, 2, and 3, is kind of wonderful. George Lucas did such a great job of painting the story on the camera, not just in the dialogue, which we'll get into, Mm -hmm. but including episode one, which, you know, does get a lot of flack for its plot being about trade disputes and very politically minded while trying to be a kid's movie. We'll get to that one. I still want to touch on this one too, though. Yes. Yeah. So, well, shoot, go ahead. What are your thoughts kind of overall about episode one? Um, Just to piggyback off of what you said, Harold, um, I think that there's something in the Star Wars brand and the branding. When you have that kind of opening, when the, when the letters trail off into a small, like it's going out into space, um, there's a branding there. You know when you come to a Star Wars film and you see that opening, it's iconic, like you said. And because you have that branding, um, I was so stoked when I saw Phantom Menace. At first, when I got in the movie theater, like I was super excited for this movie, so I had really high expectations. It gets you pumped. 
And especially after seeing the trailer and I see some dude with a double-sided lightsaber and then, you know, Qui-Gon Jinn uh, is played by uh, Liam, Neeson. Liam Neeson. And it's like, you know, he's a badass character. It was before Taken, um, but he was already in several movies like Rob Roy and he's actually a trained like sword fighter. So I thought he made sense having a lightsaber. So I had all these expectations that it was going to be on the same level as the original films. And that's what I remember coming to this movie. The amount of excitement I had was amazing. And I think there's also something else to be said about the casting of Liam Neeson. Because when you look back at the original uh, trilogy, mm -hmm. uh, not to go back there for too long, but the, the only real stars that added any credibility to the, to the production were Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan, uh, Billy D. Williams as uh, Lando Calrissian, and uh, Peter Cushing as Tarkin. Mm -hmm. um, those, those actors were like the kind of credence, the Robert Redford of their Winter Soldier, if you will. Yeah. Um, so a, a grab as young as Liam Neeson, and he was relatively young star, not was, young in, in age. fifties, I'd say late fifties. But young in his real rise to stardom, mm -hmm. a grab like him at that point was a great, was a great decision by Lucasfilm and a great decision from Leeson, uh, mm -hmm. Neeson because there's a, a story behind it. Um, he had a very tragic uh, event in his personal life. His wife died. Mm -hmm. And um, before she had died, they had he had received the script for episode one and he wasn't going to even audition because he didn't really do uh, science fiction. He didn't really do fanfare films. He wanted to work on his craft and really develop as an actor. And his wife kind of convinced him to do the audition after their trip and because it would be fun and it would be something different that he could try. And as we know with Liam Neeson now, mm -hmm. there's not a role that he won't try. Yeah. I um, mean, the guy's in his 70s and he's still kicking people's ass like he's Jason Bourne. So it's like, what? Huh? And it's believable because of the way he acts, what he brings to, to the, the, the presence gravitas. of the character. Yeah, exactly. But the moment of tragedy is his, his wife died on that trip. And that then, would take so much out. I don't care who you are, like, to be able to act at all, you know, um, after that, it'd be like... But I, I think it's kind of touching that, you know, her final advice to him, he took, and it gave us one of the, the best characters in the prequels, if not the entire saga, the entire Star Wars continuity. Mm -hmm. Qui-Gon Jinn is such a good baseline for what an actual Jedi, regardless of the political nature of the film or the circumstances they're in, he is what a Jedi is meant to be. And that really came across in his performance against other heavy hitters like a young Ewan McGregor and Samuel L. Jackson. L. Jackson yeah. Frank, uh, I believe it, is it Frank Welker that does Yoda? Uh, yes. So Frank Welker doing Yoda. Yoda could be Yoda, though, you know, because it's like he's just the character on It's screen. not Frank Welker. I believe it's Frank Oz. Oh, Frank Oz. Okay. But his character on the screen is just such a big presence. You know what I mean? Everybody knows Yoda. Everybody loves Yoda. So, But in every interaction that I saw in Phantom Menace between Liam Neeson and another heavy-hitting actor that's there for the love of Star Wars as well, mm -hmm. he never gave up his commanding presence. Even when he was doing something as little as encouraging Anakin to follow him, to, to pay attention, yeah. he, he still brought 
such a level of depth to that character in such a shallow script, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and I mean, you have to understand, like, with the plot of the movie um, and what it's following, the Jedi had become very lazy at this point. Um, they, the political process was running and they didn't really want anything to do with that. So, so they were sitting on their tower and yeah, they would have like little individualized missions that they would go out and do. Um, but for the most part, they were like living kind of like in peacetime, you know, and, and there were no Sith to fight, no bad guys that the concept hadn't even been brought up yet until that movie. We didn't get that in the original ones. Um, so uh, I think that what Qui-Gon Jinn's character was saying is, you know what, there's some stuff going on behind the scenes here, guys, that you're not seeing. And there's some stuff with this political stuff we shouldn't even be touching. And he was kind of like the rebellious one, but the anti-hero. He was rebellious for the right reason. And I think that Lucas could have sold that more because you really don't get that at first. But when you look back at it and what the Jedi were at this point, um, it he brings that to light. He's the character that shows their flaw. But if you remember, I believe it's when they're on the uh, ship going uh, through the core. Um, it's Obi-Wan who points out that he senses something else elsewhere, while Qui-Gon's character doesn't really sense anything at all. He doesn't notice. Well, that's also a callback to the very beginning, the opening sequence of the film when they walk into the room with the C-3PO ripoff that was kind of cool to see. Like, oh, it's... It's a shiny platinum C-3PO. That's cool. Mm -hmm. um, where he says to Obi-Wan, be mindful of the present. Don't let your mind wander. Then he stayed by that the entire way through the film. Uh, Obi-Wan is some is a character that is plagued by constantly worrying about things that are outside of his control. And that's what he kind of learns as he goes through the prequels. Till you see him in episode four where he is completely at one with what his task in life is to do. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's cool that you get to see that because when we grow up and go back and watch 4, 5, and 6, get to appreciate it more for those things, whereas the people who saw it before already know that. But in the prequels, they didn't really get much, going back to what Shub said. I mean, mm -hmm. for us, we got all the flashy stuff, all the lightsaber action. You know, for him, it was like having to pay attention to the in-between stuff you know, the trade federations, why they were doing what they were doing, and all that stuff really looked overall, sorry about that, kind of boring, you know? They didn't really explain it well enough. And I'd like to pose a question to Shu because out of all of us in the age range, you were at a completely different point in your life when you saw Phantom Menace. We were kids just enjoying the flashy shit that was on screen, yeah. not really caring about the depth of dialogue, the, the editing of a sequence and how it took, can take away from a film. As an adult going in there as also a longtime fan of Star Wars, because you had it longer than we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like sunk my teeth into Star Wars. I had seen the movies maybe two or three times, but it was like the fourth time in third grade, I remember. Um, our teacher, Mr. Berger, he actually stopped the class. It was towards the end of the year, stopped the class for three days, and each day we got to watch and talk about Star Wars after the class. That sounds like the best elective I've never gotten to take in Yeah, and it was in third grade too, so it was super cool. But it was like... like I felt like I fell in love with those movies at that time. That's when it really got me. So, of course, when I see this trailer come on the screen, that Star Wars is going to be back. And I forget what movie I was watching. Maybe it was like Jurassic Park or something like that. 
is, I don't know. That might be a little bit off. That's going back a few years. Hey, dating myself here. Around it's that all time, uh, good. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so, yeah, I was super excited about it. And uh, when I came to it, I just had, like I said before, a lot of expectations because of the amount of love I had for those movies. What, or what were exactly your expectations, though? Like, what were you hoping to get out of it? Then? I, I thought it was going to be epic. So... Usually people that really like this uh, universe, the Star Wars universe, they are expecting something kind of like um, different, unique, mind-blowing, but uniquely Star Wars, again, that brand. And um, I was, my expectations, I feel like it, I had false expectations in a way. I understood more having watched the movie. Um, we get words like midichlorians um, in this movie, which is highly controversial. I know, don't crucify me just yet for bringing that one up. Um, oh, no, we're going to talk about everything. <laughs> but, like, you know, we, we get, like, some of the background stuff, like Sith. What are the Sith? Uh, we never hear Vader. We never hear even Sidious being called a Sith in any of the other movies. You know, um, and, like, in thinking about that stuff, it was almost an afterthought. Because I left the theater feeling like, well, that just happened, and it was cool, but as the days passed, I looked back at it and said, now, but was that a really good movie? I don't know. Was, I can understand uh, where you're coming and from. And I liked it less and less with each day that went by afterwards. And that, that's, that's tough to say for a Star Wars fan. It didn't set the bar high, though, for like the next movie, so I was worried after that. Absolutely. But I came in with high expectations. I can understand where you're coming from because uh, the unfortunate thing is one, by the time you get to three and it's all said and done... You understand that going back, watching 4, 5, and 6, none of that stuff really has to be said because the bad guys have already taken over. You know, none of that stuff matters. You know, the Jedi's gone. Nobody knows anything, you know, so of course it's not there. So yeah. to go back and explain it and why it disappeared is kind of hard to do. And by the time you get to that, it's like, oh, that's why, you know, but to piece it all together. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, can, it can kind of get... Frustrating. Well, what did, what did you guys like about the film, and, and what did you guys dislike about the film? So I can kind of bullet point mine. Mm -hmm. um, Ewan McGregor okay. was a standout, and not just in Phantom Menace, to the point now where the audience has accepted him as the iconic Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. We want a Disney Plus show, and we want a movie. Give them both to us. We'll eat it up. Um, you, so Ewan McGregor was great. Pod racing was exhilarating. It was fun. And I really enjoyed the level of special effects upgrade that it took to do that as compared to the original trilogy. We saw nothing mm -hmm. like pod racing originally, but it was fun outside of the main story because you didn't have to worry about the Force or the Jedi or the Sith. This was a kid racing. None it of it mattered. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was cool. And the little rivalry with Sebulba was interesting. The CGI at the time. Yeah. Before we Top talk notch. about yeah. the bad stuff, mm -hmm. some of the good stuff was the CGI. Sebulba looked great. He perfectly interacts with some of the physical props that they have him do, like when he pulls the vent off yeah. of the pod. And, and the movements were so clean. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's no break. Very you know? crisp. And mm -hmm. very good characterization. Watto, too. Watto was a great character. He was very sleazy. He, he fit that Tatooine vibe that we got a glimpse of before. Yeah, yeah. Anakin. Jake Lloyd as Anakin was, in my opinion, pitch perfect. If you're going to do a child Anakin, which I disagree with, I think they should have started at the preteen, you know, when it starts to matter. 
Um, mm-hmm. But having – if you're going to go with a child, they cast it perfectly. I think he does a really good job of standing on his own. There's that one scene where even though he's interacting with the person we know is going to be his love interest for the rest of his time, mm-hmm. when she's like, so you're a slave? And he's like, I'm a person and my name is Anakin. Like he wasn't afraid to like, no, I, you're – Call me who I am. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the little moments. Mm -hmm. But it was all bogged down by some of the bad stuff. Oh, wait. I'm not done with good stuff. There's more. Mm -hmm. I I keep forgetting, like, the little things in Phantom Menace. Darth Maul, obviously at the end, was that duel mixed with John Williams' perfect score. That was the best duel we'd seen up until that point. And, of course, Ray Parker, the stuntman. And it introduced a new lightsaber. Yeah. New oh. lightsaber, but I mean, I think the level of the entertainment in dueling increased because with the old movies, you know, they're swinging their lightsabers like at basically half wrist turns and very slow movements, and they're very erect. So it has more of like fencing kind of feel to it. And this one, it really opens up, and uh, that's really the best part of the movie. Like I linchpin that part and say, "Wow, that that's like top notch." You know, for I, the it, choreography, it was great. Absolutely. I do think that there was uh, an issue in the marketing. There are two issues for, with me in the marketing of episode one, but we'll get to that. Um, I, I Yeah, I loved them all. I, mm-hmm. And cu- when you pair that fight, and honestly, all the big events of the movie, destroying the Trade Federation ship, the war between uh, the Gungans and the droids. It all starts here. John Williams' score mm-hmm. perfectly oh, yeah. encapsulates encapsulates it from the minute a long time ago in a galaxy far far away shows up to the moment it says directed by george lucas duel of fates was amazing duel of fates that great little celebration song at the end with the weird electric ball that they held up that was cool that was fun too it had an african vibe to it and Mm -hmm. when you pair it up with scenes like qui-gon's funeral like those moments hit so much deeper because of the genius behind the music Mm mm-hmm but that said, what do you guys like? What are some of the good points for you? If I didn't name them all. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not going to be too redundant about this. Go ahead, Harold. You go. I mean, you know me, Brent. I can't be too harsh on anything, even when all is said and done, and uh, people try to point out, you know, what they consider to be bad and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy it, really. Um, I mean, Qui-Gon not being in it for too long, that kind of sucks, you know. Uh, well, I mean, he is in the whole movie, but the mm-hmm. prequels at large, he should have had a larger appearance. True. Um, it would have been great to see, uh, Darth Maul going at the end too, you know, it'd have been cool to see him come back, you know, you don't really get to see him until... Well, he does, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, you have to watch those things though. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I kind of dislike, and it's, I mean, really overall, it's kind of George Lucas' fault, is, uh, Jar Jar Binks. Uh, personally, I didn't mind him, you know, it didn't bother me. Jar Jar. I can see why people have a problem with He's him. He's a Sith Lord. But, <laughs> yeah, the fact that there was apparently supposed to be some kind of payoff... You know, it really sucks because now we never even remotely got that payoff. And when you go back and watch up with someone, you could even see small things by now. Like, that was going to happen, you know, or at least something. And he tricked them the whole time. I mean, from the moment they land on the planet and meet up with him, he's doing a whole bunch of shit and guiding them along. I they, think it's too, so, like, yeah. You know, I don't want to get into the negatives, like, right away. But, like, at the same time, I can agree with that one. And that one needs to be stated because that was... For fans, that was like a make it or break for so many. 
you know. I'd like there's more to say about Jar Jar that leads to a, a deeper discussion. As, exactly, on the that's trilogy a whole, as a whole. That's a whole other can of worms. Absolutely, I'd like to open that up at the end because it kind of encapsulates a lot of mm-hmm. what the prequels represent. More so on Episode One, though, it it was good, but in some cases it just wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you had great star power. You had Natalie Portman. You had Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, some great voice acting for character actors that did the CGI and some of the uh, practical effect uh, characters. But for where it falls apart is, you know, how they're all put together yeah. at the end of the day. I don't know how, but Natalie Portman had no chemistry with not one, but both of the Anakins she had to act against. I think part of it, too, is the character for her. Um, because the character is supposed to be a little bit kind of reserved. And she comes across that way as reserved. Because um, she's the Nubian qu- or queen. And you have the, you had the Padme that was like her... Um, servant girl but that was really her the whole time you know so she's operating under this like undercover role so she's not really as a character trying to reveal too much about herself on screen and unfortunately it really just doesn't give natalie portman the room to really show her chops as an actress funny story about natalie portman in star wars episode one though uh terrence stamp who plays chancellor valorum uh he did, he signed on to do the movie mm-hmm. solely to work with Natalie Portman, and funny story, they never spent one scene together. They didn't do any work together. Oh, talk about your disappointing uh, movie deal. Yeah, right. Wasn't that on the contract? Wait a minute, hold on. So it's like it's fun little stuff like that that makes these stories great. Um, some of the ugly though, I think it's time to get into. You know, the things that the fans absolutely bashed. And somewhat for good reason. Taking, not knowing your demographic. Because mm-hmm. on one hand, you have this very adult, very convoluted plot about trade federations and political underthrowing. It, that's, that's, that's honestly what killed the movie. Because they didn't know how to space it outright between the action that was happening. And then you have these long arcs of dialogue that really people don't care about, really. It's it's so uh, infinitesimal, the detail that they're putting into it. And I think that Lucas just lumped it together wrong. Wrong connection, wrong formula. My, My criticisms of Lucas as a director and writer really come through in episode two. Yeah, um, he's definitely got good, way good, and better to say about him, but yeah. Um, with, the, with the ugly parts of episode one, you have that dark plot mm-hmm. of the, the political underthrow and infiltration, all this, all this stuff with Palpatine, but then you have the outrageous, childish moments of why this... You have two conflicting movies that are trying to be cohesive... On one hand, you have a dude that's shadow puppeting an enti- the starting of a war, and he's controlling both sides. On the other hand, you have robots whose AI allows them to trip up on sentences, forget words, and have emotion. And then there's Jar Jar Banks, mm-hmm. the perfect iconography of Star Wars 
at the end of the day, and as much as we might not like it, but George Lucas's Star Wars is for, is the for kids. kids. Oh yeah, and and Jar Jar proves that mm-hmm. in a in a very big way. But how about you guys? Some of the stuff that you didn't like before we move on to the much maligned second film. Oh, it gets better. I mean, I think I can really agree with you when you say that they should have started a little bit later because with number one and the setup and all of that, it's like it really is convoluted and it would have been better to just start a little more later down the road and cover the things that happened in like two and three because it would have been cool to see as a kid either way and it wouldn't have been as boring with all the dialogue and convoluted with the plot. It would have just been action, really. And the dialogue in two at least is short and sweet you know, during those moments, because there's a war going on already. They don't have time to talk. Yeah, I, I think that in, even in transitioning between the first movie and the second movie, um, the first movie is kind of a standalone film. It has a beginning, and it has an end, and there's loss. You know, obviously, uh, Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon Jinn, uh, and then Darth Maul is presumably killed. He's cut in half and goes down a chute. And then they have this big celebration at the end. And it kind of reminded me of the celebration that happened at the end of uh, number six. Um, Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. It had that kind of closure feel to it. So the whole film felt like in coming into the second movie, it didn't even have to happen. Episode two could have been episode one, essentially. It could have been. It really could have been. And they could have fleshed out more of the Clone Wars and made it a movie. Phantom Menace could have been an Anakin spin-off movie. But then we wouldn't have Darth Maul, so for me, uh, I would actually prefer that they would keep it just for that character. Just for that character. One last thing I'd like to say. And Mace think... Windu, but we get him. Oh, Samuel L. Jackson's so great. Oh, he's awesome. Um, Harold, do you have anything more to add to Phantom Menace before I make my last point? Not really. Okay, so on my last point for the ugly, there is only one way to watch The Phantom Menace, and that is unfortunately the updated version because that Yoda puppet for the original release, I don't know if you guys remember what it was like sitting there in the theater and seeing that horrifying zombie version of a Yoda puppet. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I had to ignore that. Nightmares. I had nightmares. Yoda went down a couple notches in my, you know, respect column after seeing that. And it shouldn't have affected the character, but the the low quality that they use is really surprising considered how it was so great looking in other areas. Why didn't you just make the same same damn puppet? Absolutely. I'm I'm in agreement there. And and that is uh, getting into episode two. The way I want to break down episode two, because there is a lot to get through, and having an in-depth discussion on episode two, Attack of the Clones, could be its very own hour and a half episode. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to break it, I want us to break it down in bullet points of what we like, what we don't like, what it kind of means to us as a whole. For me, I'm going to start out with saying, great was Ewan McGregor. Again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though he's dealing with some of the worst script Uh, one of the worst scripts in the saga and some of the just most uninspired direction I've ever seen actors deal with. Uh, And especially in a story where you're supposed to have so much fanfare come in, you've got Django, the father of Boba Fett. You've got a new Sith enemy, Count Dooku who doesn't show up until, like, what, an hour and 45 minutes into the film? Yeah, but you don't get Jar Jar Binks except for one little scene where he shows up and, you know, he's into politics now, apparently. And who doesn't love the lifeboard 
the lifeboard style wooden acting of Hayden Christensen in some of his scenes. Yeah. And even worse, the chemistry with Natalie Portman. Oh, was, that, that was, yeah, that was a yawn. There was no romance in that at all. Tan. It was creepy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, like, I, we all rewatched the films leading up to this. When I was watching episode two again, the scene where in the, near the beginning where they're in her room and she's packing her bags for Naboo and he's just like staring at her with this, this weird look. It was so creepy. And I'm like, how did, how did an editor look through many takes of mm-hmm. these sequences and go, you know what? I'm going to go with the rapey vibe one. Ooh, yeah. Well, I mean, he is Darth Vader. Um, but no, I don't think that's a good excuse for it. I really do think it's the casting. Um, I, I found myself with Anakin wanting to like him the whole movie. I wanted to like him. And maybe that was part of Hayden Christensen's performance because there was something there. Um, but he came across as a whiny, arrogant asshole. Pretty much like the whole movie. There are some breaks with it where he shows some emotion and character and, and it, it comes out well. But it's only moments, it's flashes. That's it, all you get. It it really is. And and one thing I'll say in defense of Kevin uh, of Hayden Christensen's performance, and and I liken this to what Kevin Smith has said on it too. Hayden Christensen played the role exactly as it was written. Mm-hmm. In my in in what I can gather, George Lucas know who to blame in these situations. George Lucas wrote Anakin to be a whiny little brat who didn't get his way and he was sad and upset about it yeah we got that in the first one and then this and then then this it carries over well but it's uh, i think it's just something to take into account when you've got a child who grew up with just a mother and no father no uh real parental figure to bring authority down and show him right from wrong in a way that you know He's not always just dismissing everybody. Well, he had, do... Obi- he had Obi-Wan, but he looked at him as more of a brother. Yeah, you know, just like friend, you know, mm-hmm. you only listen to him so much, you know, but when like they start bearing brother. down on you, it's like, oh, I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah, um, there was no respect in their relationship. You could kind of see that even as they were talking to each other in the elevator, Anakin was always kind of like questioning Obi-Wan, thinking he was better, like a legend in his own mind already. It's that arrogance that comes across. And and the lovely performance of Ewan McGregor, like kind of playing with with them wittingly a little bit, and and that goes into some other good parts of the film. I love the chase sequence in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate the setup to it because there's just the worms. It's weird. It's just a lot of weird stuff that happens, followed by some cool stuff that happens. Yeah, centipedes are kind of creepy, though. I wouldn't want centipedes in my bed. They're creepy. Yeah. But how did the Je- why did the Jedi notice the worms and not their super force hearing, hearing the window being cut? Uh, there's a lot of questions you could ask about that scene. E- exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just seemed to be underplaying certain parts just to draw scenes out. You know what I mean? It's kind of like some of the scenes they could have made even more impactful if they hadn't just cheesed them up a little bit. And here's a question. Why did we even need that woman shape-shifting assassin i'm always for more star wars characters but as long as they serve the story or if they're just great background some of the best characters we've seen in star wars are background Mm -hmm. but that would have been a great way to uh show a chase scene drop you right into jango fett show you this bounty hunter type dude he gets away you can still do the chase through the club but you just have to end it a little differently without Aunt Hayden Christensen doing that weird, tell us now, <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's all about setup. 
they just it's all set up that's uh, that and that comes down to it that's what episode two is it's just set up yeah it's the t so it's like um basically when you come down to it i i liken it to kicking a field goal you know when it's a one two combo like that they are a one and two kind of movie even though there's a space between the second episode and the third episode um it picks up kind of where it left off and we're not even through the beginning yet. Like, there is so much more it's, after the... Well, the Clone Wars is the space in between. We actually learned there's a lot in between. But as far as narrative and storytelling, yeah. like uh, they, I, I just feel it's rushed. I yeah. mean, the only thing that I can really think about is, is, is rushed. They, they go from set piece to set piece. Oh, and if you were a big fan of the CGI landscapes in episode one, George Lucas, listen to you guys. Because... The, it almost hurts your eyes. The the just enormous amount of needless CG yeah. in episode two. There's what, a lot. What, what did what did everybody think of the lightsaber dueling in episode two? I mean, when the action is on, you know, it's pretty good. But that really is it. You know, it's mm-hmm. just the action parts. Well, we get to see Yoda with a lightsaber for the first. time. I'm not a fan. I was not a fan of that choice. Uh, I like Yoda being the answer to nonviolence and showing him as an ultra violent fighter. Just it did. It kind of confused me. Even as a kid, I was like, I wouldn't have done that. I always liked Yoda more as the wise, you know, you seek him for advice. It's always, you can talk things out. Yeah. And yet he shows up with a lightsaber and can damn near one shot anybody. Yeah. They, they set the heart of the bar high uh in episode one with that duel that maul had with qui-gon and obi-wan um but then you come to this movie and you have christopher lee and you you know he's a badass because like he totally takes obi-wan out like quickly and he actually was the mentor to obi-wan's master qui-gon we found out in that movie too he seems to have diverted to the dark side and at first, when I saw Christopher Lee on the screen, which I'm a fan, I like him. I liked him. Oh, I think we all are. Who doesn't? Uh, Lord of the yeah. Rings. I, and, and I liked him coming to the character. He was just Christopher Lee as Count Dooku. You know, that's who he was. And um, But the character himself was OP. I mean, the dude was shooting lightning. He took out Obi-Wan so fast. Hayden Christensen had a real cool moment where he had the dual lightsabers. And he's going after him. And it looks like it could get pretty good for a second. But the movements with this character were so, um, and part of it is the lightsaber style you find out about if you look into other Star Wars lore, but uh, it's it's different. He's very stiff and he can move his lightsaber around very quickly, but it's not as exciting. It doesn't have those big movements and the, and the, uh, the grand music, I think, at, at that moment too. I think it's helped, though, by the way they shot it. Because I'll say this. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite uh, shots and sequences in Star Wars, to be honest with you, is the the darkness. And all you see is the blades moving in front of Christensen's face. That was cool. That moment was really cool. I wish they would have continued that for a little bit. The only thing, like a what if... If his eyes would have been red, if he would have went a little bit to the dark side, and yeah, like, yeah, that would have been And I'm like, awesome. set it up a little bit. Just give me, give me See, a little. That's taste. the kind of setups they should do instead of you know what we got. And sadly, mm-hmm. that's the setups in the Clone War series. Which honestly, any arc from the Clone War series would have made an infinitely, infinitely more enjoyable and understandable movie. But I understand you have to you have to tell us where the the clone troopers came from. You had, which they did. I yeah. Camino just kind of came out of nowhere and left. We also got Boba Fett's history. 
you know, that came out of that too. Very Did we cool. need it? Um, no, because Boba Fett was so much cooler when he was a mystery. Agreed. Yeah. Sometimes, dependent on the character, I had a fear of Joker with this. Not to get into comic books at all, mm-hmm. but a big fear of Joker is if you explain the character, they kind of lose that intrigue. No, it's, and a, it's a good bunny trail analogy. Too much reveal is a bad thing. Yeah, it's a, and it's a good bunny trail analogy. Like and a good one to make. Seeing seeing this kid who's supposed to be my Boba Fett, mm-hmm. who's not what I pictured in my mind as Boba Fett. His dad, on the other hand. Exactly who I picture as Boba Fett. His dad, Jango Fett, was badass. I just... Uh, yeah, that actually was my favorite battle of the movie. Yes, was same. Between Obi-Wan and the rain with Jango. And there's only one little gripe that I have, and it's about realism. Raindrops would make little... On the, on the saber. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it was, I think it was an episode of one of the animated versions of, like, uh, Clone Saga. I forget what that was called, but it was... Um, I think Anakin's lightsaber was in the snow, and you could see that stuff coming off. Yeah, that definitely should have been added. And I and I want to open up our conversation pocket a little bit to the behind the scenes stuff because I think, like I said in our discussion about Episode One, the real introspection to George Lucas's style of directing and writing really shows through. And it's I'm sorry to say this because I love George Lucas, mm-hmm. but his it's kind of weak sauce. People don't talk like that. And it really kind of takes you out of the immersion that you're so used to. Because the faceless hero dialogue from the originals is fine. Because we've seen it all before. But it seemed the, the difference in episode two and episode one and three to a degree, not as badly showcased as episode oh, two. Because there was plenty, plenty of word salad in episode one, too. Yeah. yeah, it's just like people don't talk this way. People don't relay information to each other like when i'm watching the scene between the supposed to be a very intimate scene between anakin and padme on uh naboo where she's in that very lingerie-ish black dress and it just it came off like a soap opera and their chemistry and performance didn't help in any sense. Yeah, it's but one of the worst romances I've ever seen on film. It's got to be up there, top ten. Honestly, for me, the Naboo section stops the movie dead. Any momentum that you had going forward mm-hmm. is just stopped dead in its tracks oh, yeah. uh, with the Naboo sequence. And, and by the time she starts getting interested, you don't even care about it anymore. And it's such a 180 turn. <laughs> on one planet, she's like... Well, I'm going to help Obi-Wan, and I'm not really like you. I like you, but we're not going to be a thing. And then they get kidnapped on another planet, and she's like, I've always loved you. It's the deepest feelings I've ever had for anybody else, and I want to die married to you. And, and you're just like, where the hell did this come from? And, and also the emotional expression, unfortunately, because, again, Natalie Chapman has the act. Portman. The, or Portman has Sorry. the chops to do this. Sorry, my bad. Um, she has the chops to do this and sell it. And uh, (laughs) her character was very muted the whole time. It was almost like she was monotone the whole time in her expressing. Until you get to Geonosis, and then out of nowhere, the writing style changes completely, and Mm -hmm. she's supposed to be this badass, fearless leader that's leading a troop of clones 
into battle. Oh, of course, because she had that in there the whole time, and we all figured she could do it. We She's all figured it. Top on. <laughs> but the problem is you're in visual storytelling. We didn't see it before that moment, and then it's just kind of like a surprise when she's the only one kind of outmaneuvering her little beast. Oh, yeah. Those were cool. You could give her a lightsaber at that point and just let her start pushing people around in the force, sure. too. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. And speaking of Geonosis, like, what a bland way to start your war, honestly. Yeah, I mean, there were some... Some scenes from that I really connected with, though, like the scene when Django had his head cut off and his son picks it up, the helmet, and he puts his head on the helmet. That shot probably was the most impactful shot in the whole movie for me. And you could kind of understand why Boba Fett is the way he is. And that was the only thing I liked about the Django-Boba Fett relationship being the origin story for Boba Fett. But that came out of that. That was a good thing, I can say. Good point for me. I mean, just... uh piggybacking off that you know it doesn't really i don't really care for that much because it then it's like um his story is just like my dad died so now i'm gonna get revenge you know and that's cool and all but as we all know he dies so yeah no that's fair that's fair i mean maybe he doesn't you know there's always hope for him to come back but he kind of goes from atreus to batman it's kind of funny yeah i never looked at it that way before i think you're right Mm mm-hmm uh, a couple cool things. Like, for me, the ending battle, it, it's something that when you're making a film, you look, you write something down and you're like, that's badass. Mm-hmm. You have, like, 80 Jedi all with their, with their lightsabers ignited. You've got Samuel L. Jackson brandishing a purple lightsaber, and you're just like, this is dope. And then as it keeps going, the faceless variety of Jedi that are fighting just hordes of the same enemy it got boring real quick yeah i think after the first film the cannon fodder those robots that act silly sometimes and are like these bad guys that we can take seriously obviously not they're cannon fodder you know what i mean so they're very uninteresting and at that point we'd seen so much of it in star wars you know we really were i I found myself like wanting more from the scenes that would just highlight a character a standout character as really a badass like you're saying i didn't get it i really didn't see a standout even in samuel l jackson's movements um they were so quick when he killed Django. i didn't like that kill scene it, it wasn't satisfying no, it really cuz it was anticlimactic mm-hmm. it's like the one enemy he takes of care of very quickly cuz you know jedi especially him and it makes obi-wan look like a wuss too can, but yeah can take out lots of enemies which the animated clone wars shows a lot better but in this we don't see it i mean they should have ripped through most of those enemies that were coming at them just like that but and i said think- it was like I think, too, this is where you see the tiered system within Jedi and and Sith. Because at this point, Jedi and Sith are well-established. You have a tiered system. So you have your guys like Obi-Wan and Anakin that were like that. And even the character you saw with the... Looks like tentacles growing out of the back of his head. Like, yeah, um, and his name is Kit Fistu. Yeah, there we go. Kit Fistu. You see a scene where he force pushes somebody and he has a happy smiley face. (laughs) You know, again, for the kids, that's a kid's thing. But you see the tiered system when Dooku enters it and he's well beyond Obi-Wan and um, Anakin. And you see it when Yoda comes into the room because they're almost equally matched in their lightsaber duel. But you wouldn't know that Samuel L. Jackson was on their level yet. But at least you had the tiering set up. You see these upper echelon force and lightsaber users versus the more mediocre 
And on a deeper level, I think uh, Christopher Lee as Dooku is another foreshadowing of not knowing your demographic. How many kids, like, that could have been easily avoided and made the character cooler. How many kids knew who Christopher Lee was? Nobody. I didn't. Nobody yeah. Done. So. You find out afterwards. You're like, you have the, you're, you get off on the sense that, oh my god, I got this pedigree actor to be in my Star Wars movie. But he can't really do much stunt work as far as, j- he just has to stand there. And you have to say, Count Dooku is actually a callback to when he was Count Dracula. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, Lee commands mm-hmm. uh, a performance. He's great, and he's trusted a performer. Mm-hmm. But I think you would have gotten a lot more af- of if you would have went somebody a little bit more uh, celebrity. Maybe, uh, a little, the, maybe a little younger. I don't want to hit on age, but a little younger too. At least, or at least develop stunt work and story behind it to make it seamless that he can actually fight Obi-Wan and Anakin and Yoda without it making look like camera trick. Now, I will say this in defense of it. Um, he is using form two of lightsaber fighting, which is called uh, Makashi. And Makashi is minimal body movement but maximum um, blade efficiency in a duel against other lightsaber forms. And he was the master. Like, Count Dooku and that's, was the master of it. And that's why Dooku and all the other media that we see him in is amazing. He is wonderful in Clone Wars as a, as a character and, and, this, and the books, too. When you see him visually, though, he's not as intimidating because of all the setbacks casting Christopher Lee does to that character yeah the emotional expression with lightsaber strikes and stuff like that he he was always off pace with what he should have been expressing i found i found his face doing one thing and the action should have been saying something else absolutely and that's unfortunate that that that's just and a lot of that has to do again with um not using the chemistry of what you have on set right it's just not connecting at this point completely and it comes back again to like George Lucas, he is a wonderful storyteller. He is a wonderful world builder. Mm-hmm. When you have actors like that, you need to be able to direct them efficiently and directly. Mm-hmm. And from all the behind-the-scenes featurettes that are available online and on the hard copies of the films, I just didn't see it. I didn't see him really commanding that presence, you know? Mm-hmm. But I'd like to, to end our Clone Wars discussion with one good thing. We have to, we have to say one universally <laughs> good thing without a caveat to negativity about this film. I'll go first to start us okay. off. It's kind of a collection of two moments, but it's all one sequence. The moment uh, Anakin leaves from the the Lars home on the speeder mm-hmm. to duel of fates to hunt down the Tuscan Raiders. He gets there. He finds his mother shackled, still alive, so she can breathe some words at yeah, him. Yeah. And the score when she finally passes, the that fleet flute music. Dun, 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 they should have maybe done that. Yeah, but they, they didn't do that. Part? They did. I thought they did. They chose to go with this frenzied flute 
type deal. Was it like that, dun, 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 dun? no? It wasn't no, like, it was. It, we'll have to watch it. At some it wasn't point. Duel of Fate. Sorry, my bad. I'm trying to like. It's this it frenzied off rhythm flute thing that kind of just perfectly encapsulates his mind going crazy in this moment, and they show that snap. I would have loved to have seen him actually yeah, take down the right. Tuscan Raiders, mm-hmm. but in a PG movie, I understand why they could. You know what though? That's one of the scenes you could say the sound was enough. You mm-hmm. knew what was going on. And it was yeah. a wonderful performance from Hayden, like one of the standouts of that film f- in favor of him. So that's my pick for like just the altruistic best part of the Solid film for pick. me. Solid pick. For me, um, really now that it's all been said and done and it's what we got, you know, there's nothing really to complain about. I'd say you just go back and enjoy it. Since you've got one, two, and three back to back, you can just watch them all straight through, even if the story's a little jumbled. So there wasn't just... like one thing you would say that you really liked about it? I mean... Character and plot point. Something that maybe was foreshadowed. See, I can't because I really think that George Lucas should have doubled down on the Jar Jar thing. That's what he wanted to go for. You know, I know that fans didn't like it, but then in number two, we get not only... I mean, I don't know if it would have been a completely different movie, but if if he had kept Jar Jar was in it, you know, you wouldn't have had to introduce Count Duke, or even if you did... So your regret is that Jar Jar didn't continue to develop as a character? Pretty much, you know? I mean, we got that scene where he's in the political thing, and I think that still shows what he wanted to go for, Mm -hmm. because he helps um, Palpatine get into place, but... Unknowingly, assumably, because I guess there's some conspiracy theories out there that say... I don't... I don't listen. All right, so my thing on the Darth Jar Jar thing is it's a fun fan speculation. I have watched these movies almost at a professional rewatch level. I don't see them trying to set up him as a dark character. I, I I see Jar Jar kind of running the same note as a kid's character throughout. It's it's kind of a fun what if if you're you know smoking exactly spot. exactly yeah, oh, it's yeah. a fun yeah. what if and some of the art that's come out is really really fucking cool. Mm-hmm. But I as far as Agreed a real that, yeah. canonical uh, character development, no, I don't believe that there were any real plans at the character's conception to make him an an adversary or villain. Well, they didn't get far, so... Uh, Well, if that was their plan, I'm glad they didn't get far. (laughs) Just Um, me. I would say the the thing I was uh, most impacted by in the movie, it was actually something you stated in the beginning. Uh, Ewan McGregor's uh, importance in stabilizing the movie. If he wasn't in it, I don't know if I would have been able to get through it. So, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, he, he really is the rock that held those prequels together. And as we talk about the end of the prequels, we have to talk about now Revenge of the Sith. Oh. The finale to this this trilogy. Which is all really about Darth Vader. Really. That one's his origin story, you know? That one for me means a lot because that's the one I actually did get to go see in theaters. Mm-hmm. I went over to my friend's house one night and his dad took us to see it. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Yeah. The lightsaber duels, uh, Mustafar at the end. You know, when we got home, we were jumping off the couches, pretending <laughs> that the floor was lava and everything like that. Seeing uh, Darth Vader, you know, in the suit for the first time. I mean, it was just, yeah, just amazing. Absolutely. Now, I think that brings up a good point because Revenge of the Sith for me is of two minds. <laughs> the mind of the of the child that Dr. saw Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. <laughs> the, chi- the mind of the child that saw it mm-hmm. and found nothing wrong with it 
there is nothing I could I could talk negatively about that film, including the no at the end. Mm-hmm. All of it was perfection to me. Now, as a 27-year-old, I can watch it objectively and go, it's okay. You know, um, there's some really good moments, but there is also some really laughable decisions. And this is where, like, when it comes to these things, subjectivity is so key. Because everybody's going to have different feelings and thoughts about these movies and things that impacted them that are just uniquely theirs in the way they perceived it. Um, I would say that the movie overall for me, I would put it in the top three or four for Star Wars, any, you know, Star Wars stuff that's come out. And it's because I would say for me, the, the duel helped at the, at the end between Anakin and Obi-Wan. Oh yeah. Um, and then also, uh, Hayden Christensen really woke up as a character when he became Vader. He sold the evil. He sold that. Once it got to that point. Yeah, once it got to that point, then, then I was like, I kind of want to see more of this character now, but it happened so fast with Battle of Mustafar. Again, I was frustrated with the pacing. So it's not like I'm putting it up there perfect. I'm just saying that I really felt like Lucas tried to bring more of his A-game with this one in closing it. I really did feel like it had that epic feel to it, but maybe just short of it or missed in certain parts. Um, and I know it was disappointing for a lot of people like, and, and I think it was disappointing for you. Um, you know, now that you look back on it. So I yeah, could see I, both. I could see, I both, do right? have to, I have to judge it as, as a nine film saga, mm-hmm. um, at this point in my life and especially going through school. And when you know how the magic behind the camera works, it right. kind of loses that mysticism. Um, for me, I, I, I want to end our discussion on a high note, no pun intended. Huh. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through uh, the, 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 good, the bad and the ugly first for Revenge of the Sith. Okay, okay. Um, R2-D2's characterization was cartoonish on an insulting level. The, the the stuff that they were pulling out with what he was able to do that he couldn't somehow do in the original trilogy just was too much of a break in my mental obvious understanding. Like, yeah. the fact that he covered those two super mechs in oil and defeated them by himself, that was just, okay, that's weird. Um, the... The, the jabbing that Obi-Wan takes at R2-D2, even though when they see each other again for the first time in Episode 4, he doesn't recognize him, and R2-D2's been with him for quite a while. I think you'd remember that kind of yeah, shit. He must be breaking down in the movies, that the older movies, but chronologically the next movies that are yet to come after the, the original trilogy. Um you see that R2-D2 struggles to get those people through situations. You would think he would be more experienced at this point, but no, before, he just knew it's everything. A superhero. Oh, he was he a superhero robot. Yeah. He was the perfect plot device for whatever Lucas needed him to do. Absolutely. Know? And then you get into like how they try to ta- tie all these loose ends together while starting the seeds of rebellion. Mm-hmm. And it's laughable. Uh, there's one scene, and it's deleted, uh, a meeting with Mon Mothma and Bail Organa and Natalie Portman's uh, character, the princess, uh, I forget her name now, Padme. Padme, Padme. yes. Um, and it's just like, you're watching this deleted scene, 
And you're like, yeah, I know why you cut it out because even though you're giving us something, it tells us nothing. Mm -hmm. You're not really setting up your big trilogy, um, which is what this entire three movies was supposed to do. And you're kind of failing with the main arc of how did we get an empire? Yeah. And then out of nowhere... Palpatine just like whispers things out into the void and they somehow magically happen. I remember because I was watching it today Mm -hmm. and he's just like, huh, nobody will give me executive powers. That sucks. And the blue guy's with him and he's like, what will we do? And of course, Jar Jar's there and he's like, well, I'll give emergency powers. Who gave Jar Jar the, how does Jar Jar have the power to give Palpatine executive yeah, power? He really did influence a lot, if you think about it. Well, I feel like that was George Lucas <laughs> taking a jab at the haters before yeah, yeah, yeah. he exited. Like He's like, oh, yeah, yeah you're going to tell me my creation sucks? Well, guess what? The entire crux Thumb of in your eye. Star Wars <laughs> is Jar Jar's fault. Maybe, maybe. Fully on you guys. Maybe. Um, I mean, obviously now, looking back, the, the, the death in the birth scene is just... It's it's comedic, mm-hmm. where the robots like, the babies are fine, but for no explainable reason, we're losing her. You're a medical droid. This shouldn't be beyond your capability. It's a body. It's a living organism that you know how to figure out. I think that they could have shot that scene. Do you remember the scene when uh, Palpatine's sitting with Hayden Christensen and they're watching the play? Love it. And you hear that score, that music, that like that dark side music come over. And, you know, when the turn happens, you start hearing the Vader music. And like, I think they could have done something with the score and like showed maybe Palpatine having sway over her health from a distance. You, you could have pulled that off with just music and at least make it seem like this isn't just happening for no reason. She's just so sad that she's going to die. I mean, she literally died of a broken heart, and it's uh, ridiculous. Yes. And honestly, they yeah. should have done that because that's the main problem with these three movies is they explain the wrong things. And in the third one, that would have been good because throughout the whole thing, you're seeing uh, Anakin have dreams of Padme's death and stuff like that, which by now, you know, was Palpatine feeding him those dreams. Mm-hmm. She didn't even if have was, to die. None of that really had to happen. If he happen. manipulated Anakin, he could manipulate her. I want to pose this out to you, and I want to hear what you guys think. Why, why couldn't it have been more of a payoff? The, her last lines were, I know there's still good in him. Why couldn't you explain the reason she's dying is at his hand? He force choked her. She, he could have ruptured Snapped her. her neck. Yeah. And, and, well, I think in snapping her neck, that's instant death. Like, if he would have just damaged her vocal cords to enough that she could have survived long enough to give birth, but it still would have been, like, it being spoken that mm-hmm. Anakin's hands were the ones that killed her, and in her dying breath, she still believed in the good in him. Yeah. I think it hits deeper, and it actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. But people don't think about that before they release a movie, I guess. Yep, that, that would have been really good, too. There were many ways they could have gone with it that they didn't go with it, and it didn't. And and Palpatine, here we go, Palpatine. How do you not see this guy is not who he like? I I get that their their reasoning is, their the the forces is is clouded by the dark side. You know, really, Star Wars, and this is where I'll get into a little bit of philosophy. Really, Star Wars does have a theme of Eastern philosophy running through it. 
And the whole concept of Jedi and Sith, Jedi are kind of likened to samurai, where Sith are kind of like, likened to ninjas. You know, so they were always the ones in the background trying to hide their identity and be secretive. And I think they went to the rule of two because two could do that better than obviously a group of Sith. Plus, they were always killing each other anyways. They could never trust each other. But that kind of concept, I think they used the force basically to hide their identities. That was one of their force abilities. But you don't get the content within the movies themselves to suggest that's true. Because it's, it's such a small... There. Like, yeah. that that building, even though it might be a giant building as the CG shows us, mm-hmm. their, their confinement with Palpatine when they're in the room with him is so small, and Yoda being so attuned is just like, you know, the further away we get from Palpatine, the lesser the effect of this dark force clouding. Um, we should look into this. But nobody does. And yet there's a council of how many? Twelve? Yeah. I, I wanted to go. I was almost going to jump into the other movies as far as Fantastic. And then what, what the heck is up with the Force kind of discussion? Because um, there was some inconsistency there for sure. Absolutely there was. Um, I'd like to get your guys' opinions on some of the more bad stuff. I think we're going to go a little bit beyond, but I'm really deep into this if you guys are. Yeah, sure. I can give it. Yeah, absolutely. The only two points I really have to make is, you know, going back to number two, I can't really, and one, can't really be too harsh about anything, is I can still just enjoy the movie, especially with the battle at the end and all that, and Mm -hmm. the setups. Um, But once again, being a 27-year-old, like Brandon said, you know, we got to be subjective a little bit. You know, some of the things just could have been explained better, you know, and really could have all been so much different. You know, it would have been nice to have gotten some of that getting it years later really does kind of suck even when you do get it. Yeah. And, and for me, I really walked away. I was satisfied with it. Um, I really enjoyed the lightsaber battle between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Again, I think it was on the same level as the Phantom Menace battle. Um, it definitely Better had more. Yeah, I think it had more hanging in the balance. And you could feel that. Even though you know what's going to happen already... The movie still sold it. Not to mention you know, the... It gave me chills at times. The amount of good. realness you and, and Hayden brought to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you watch the behind-the-scenes training videos of them just choreographing this out, they're really moving that fast. It's not a camera trick. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. like, they broke each other's hands, fingers, all that good stuff, trying to make this as perfect a conclusion as they could. And... And not just the choreography, their performance mm-hmm. fucking sold that. Obi wans It's like, over! High of the high ground, Anakin! <laughs> exactly. It was it was beautiful. But I'm not done talking about how bad it is yet. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. But I had to throw something gotta, positive in there. That is why you gotta give actors a lot of credit and never really blame them for, even if you don't enjoy it, because they try their best, as in that case right there. I mean... Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the last, I guess, bad thing I'm going to say before I move into this, I'm I'm kind of okay with, is, all right, so I feel like Revenge of the Sith is like a checkerboard. You have one good step followed by a bad step, then a good step, and then a bad step. That marching scene when Anakin turns with the clone troopers marching on the Jedi Temple, iconic. It sh- that that frame should be one of the things that you know visually represents that yeah. movie, but then when you wa- when Obi Wan and Yoda are watching the security oh, footage that, that and it's to just me was the worst part of the film. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. I, was, I, I don't that. know about Jedi training, but I'm pretty sure if there's one person you're fighting, 
and the and it's the only person that has a lightsaber and force abilities and granted he didn't have a suit yet that completely cheapened his abilities to like super strength and super whatever that suit can do for him you know they all fought him one at a time yeah you would think they would do it all at once i i thought you were actually going to go somewhere else with that oh please tell me the lack of emotional response uh when obi-wan and yoda watch the younglings get decimated by oh ewan actually laughed in the in the take they used when he tells pat uh, natalie portman's character yeah like it was so disconnected that even a jedi and yeah i get it they're kind of buddhist like they're kind of like they can keep their feelings in check but come on something some sadness something on your face those are the kids that you (laughs) went out and tested their blood for midichlorians and brought them back at a really young age to train ripped them from their families care you know there should be they're all just huddled in a room you know and just for comparison let's look at alec guinness's reaction to a planet blowing up light years away Mm -hmm. as, as the same character and he's floored he's devastated all in that moment where like the line is great a thousand voices cried out at once and then were silenced and that that's good because and the same dude is laughing at kids getting killed i don't know yeah that's it's it, that to me was the weakest part of the movie and it made me it reminded reminded me that these three movies have been so flawed and haven't lived up to the expectation that i had coming into them but at the same time, they set up a lot of story, and I accept them. I embrace them as continuity. I would not have it any other way, even though they are flawed spectacles in and of themselves. We're going to get into having it any other way in a, in a, in a bit. Mm-hmm. But, um, all right, so let's, uh, do you have anything to add that like, just really pisses you off about Revenge of the Sith, Harold? I mean, not really Revenge of the Sith, but with all the three prequel movies being... Uh, prequels and then four five and six not having as much cgi mm-hmm. and then not getting into it really but the last three movies having just as much cgi as the prequels it's kind of but utilizing it much better yeah, yeah. true but ha- yeah i i like your point I'm, I'm gonna try to piggyback off of it what you're saying is and i share this too when you watch the very structured visual style of the square and rectangle design of four, five, and six versus this weird, very uh, futuristic, pristine shine, yes, uh, and color Mm -hmm. of the the prequel trilogy. And I guess with color, you could say, well, it was a happier time before the Empire, but not really. You still had the Trade Federation and a lot of seedy bullshit. Mm -hmm. Coruscant is a city plagued by you know bad shit too it didn't have to be all sunshine and rainbows you know there was something from the um the the films that were done earlier but obviously again the sequels to these um there were pauses in those older films and there were pauses where luke would just stare at the two suns and the sunset and those moments kind of felt meaningful to the film i couldn't pinpoint a moment in these films or there's a pause that adds depth to the quality of the film. I just feel like it happened. I, I, I have one. Yeah, I have what? one. The moment on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith where Anakin looks back at the camera with the red eyes. Okay. That, that was that gave me the chills. It was creepy, and that was part of Anakin selling it. But that moment where there were meaningless pauses that felt meaningful. 
I, right. did, I didn't find those in these films. That's what I'm saying. I, I was missing those meaningless pauses that added something of, oh, I can relate to that. You know what I mean? I could be there. What about the stuff that was just okay? There was a lot of that. I mean, General <laughs> Grievous was kind of cool. I do like General Grievous. I, I just don't like how they Hello dropped, there. I don't like how they dropped him in. I wish they would have given a little bit more of the Clone Wars in the actual sequels themselves to introduce a character like that. Just to have something on him, because to drop him in cold... It was kind of like, what's... who? Wait, who is this guy? Yeah, and he's pretty good at dueling. Like, wow, wow, who are these guys? Yeah, again, it's rushed in the beginning. And also, killing Dooku was really rushed in the beginning. I felt that whole first scene was just rushed. You know what probably would have been a better idea? To swap them, introduce General Grievous, and number two... And then number three, Count Dooku shows up. I like just oh, well, before we're, we're, really we're, I like it a lot. I, I want you to I want you to save your your alternate reality stuff for yeah, just for a minute. Another one. Just yeah. a just a minute. Um, all right. So kind of okay stuff. What did you guys feel about Order sixty six? Before we kind of get to our ending here. Order sixty six for me was um, it had that sense of, uh, of harrowing. It's coming to an end, but it's coming to a fruition. Now I'm seeing the Empire rise. So I could get it in the narrative. It was very clear. Um, and there were some moments uh, where you saw some Jedi that uh, got shot. And it's kind of like, oh, wow. Okay. And the music really helped. And the music helped. The score, the score all the way through this trilogy, superior. Amazing. Um, you can't say enough about it. But... Um, yeah, that Order sixty six did have that sadness to it. Um, could have been better. Absolutely, could have definitely been better. Um, but it it was good. Um, that's one thing I can say that probably is you know once you once not to get really into it, see the like Clone Wars animated series, it's really kind of disappointing because you get the impact of it, mm-hmm. but you only get to see so much, and without having a lot of explanation to the clone troops and as to why, uh, pretty much the whole lot of them would obey one person over not necessarily the jedi but like you think that they're good guys in a way or that they're helping out you know you don't expect them to just immediately turn like that i you could see it happening in the narrative though because you you know that these once he says order 66 and you hear it in the in the trooper's helmet you're like this is the moment this is the moment the turn is happening like there was no thought in my mind thinking well this is barring you know what i mean this you could see this is the plan all along this is the moment where the turn happens, where we get the setup for episode four. Um, and, like, it was clear, but yet missing something at the same time. Like, I mean, it's probably also just because of, uh, I would say, the way the Jedi played it out. I mean, if I, if I was Jedi, like Qui-Gon, I wouldn't have just trusted the whole lot of them and been in front of them, you know, yeah. with their guns at my back. And where's the precognition? Don't they have a little bit of precognition? Continuity. Probably goes into uh, midichlorians right? and how much force they but have. We, we but know that's... we know some of them survive, and Vader hunts them later. Vader hunts them later. Uh, rhymes. So uh, before we close out, because we are running at the at the end of the episode here, for sure. Uh, I want us all to end on a high note, pun intended this time. I want uh, we've done a lot of deep dives in specific moments and sequences of all three prequels, but I want you uh, both to pick one moment that solidifies all the positivity of moving forward in the Star Wars franchise that the prequels gave us. One moment, and just tell us in, like, 
I hate to use Twitter, 40 characters or less. Basically, give us a minute and a half reason why. Minute and a half? Wow, well, I'm not holding you to that. Yeah. But I'll give you like I'll give you a little bit. Um, the music, the um, everything about when the mask was coming together, um, the sound of the breathing. So uh, for you, it's Darth Vader's Darth birth. Vader, Darth Vader's birth. The very last, pretty much one of the last scenes in the movie, you know, besides the babies being born and, and Obi-Wan and taking his role to watch over at Luke, you see that some of that stuff. But yeah, that moment when you hear the music, that did it for me because then I was like, okay, it's done. It's, we've arrived. We've arrived. This is the end. We're caught up. And I didn't know that there was a lot more to the story with the Clone Wars. Not running down that bunny trail, though. I will say that moment to me was pretty iconic. I like that. Great. And it gave me chills big time. For me, it's just the confrontation between Anakin and Obi-Wan and Mustafar. Especially when Obi-Wan's like, you were supposed to be the chosen one. You know, you were my brother. It's like a real bond. They continued that theme throughout the other Star Wars movies. And, uh... Obi-Wan himself was, I think, confused about the prophecy. He didn't understand it well. And when you grow up, you understand that he was only supposed to bring balance to the Force, which could mean a whole bunch of different things. But I, I liked when he said just, that one line, I loved you, Anakin. Right. That moment just you it know, solidifies their friendship past, and the impact. That's past tense, because it's almost like Anakin died to him. But he was mourning, you know? So From a certain he, point of view. Yeah. Because he went over to the Sith, he went over to the dark side. Yeah, it was very powerful. He was Anakin no more. Yeah, very powerful. So my moment to, to the last uh, point of today's podcast, uh, my moment that solidifies the prequel trilogy, and I think even deeper as a whole, to what the, the opposing forces in Star Wars is. And it's the moment that uh, Palpatine and Anakin are sitting at the opera. And it's, and it's not uh, Palpatine's whole story, because uh, snooze fast, but um, the line where he says... There are many abil- uh, there are many pathways to abilities some believe to be unnatural. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can expound that line, it, it, it kind of comes to a meaning that power is dependent on you. And Anakin was such a character built by the expectations and viewpoints around him mm-hmm. that it all depended. On his environment, whatever way the prophecy swayed with Anakin was all dependent on his environment and, and his outside intel coming in. And that line proves it to a degree because Anakin had more power. I, I'm not getting into lore, but even bringing in lore, Anakin is considered one of the most powerful Jedi in existence. Even after he has the suit on, he's like eight-tenths the power of Palpatine, which is pretty close, you know. And, and it was all... But imagine what he could have done if, if his power was swayed under a oh, different he, viewpoint. He would have been OP. He would have been like Neo from The Matrix, you know what I mean? He would pretty much... No Jedi or Sith could compare even Palpatine or Yoda. He would have, and they even said that when Yoda and Palpatine were dueling, you know. Uh, they're, again, a very CGI fest there, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, you get some of those pieces. Um, Palpatine actually says that Anakin will become more powerful than either of us. You know, and there was some theories that came out of that that Palpatine kind of was glad in a way. That, oh, absolutely. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. That smile 
at the end of Revenge of the Sith during your favorite moment when Vader's breaking the room yeah. and Palpatine does that smile it, because he knows that at this it, moment yeah. and, and, and Vader can never beat him. And at the end of the trilogy, Palpatine is the one who won, if you think about it. The prequels. The bad guy won in the prequels. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And unlike Marvel, they just didn't handle it the right way. No way near as cool as Thanos. No way. But anyways, guys, that brings us to the end of our discussion of episodes one, two, and three. We will be back next week with our rundown of episodes four, five, and six, and then seven, eight, and nine after that. Guys, say goodbye. This was great. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for more because we will be back. Yep, we're going to get high, and we'll be on uh, note. This is Shub signing out. Peace. All right, guys. Have a good one. Thanks for listening.